I'm arrogant enough, at least some time ago, to think that I don't need anybody else. I can do everything on my own. If I want it done right, do it myself. And boy, have I got a rude awakening when it comes to the importance of having enormous support and a great staff and an amazingly supportive family and relationships. I represent people that tell me from time to time that are in a jam with the criminal law that they don't have anybody. They don't have any family. They don't have any money. They don't have any way to borrow money. They don't have any way to to hire a lawyer like me. And of course, they're in desperate, desperate straits. And it's always breathtaking to me to have people say that to me because they don't have a chance. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, results, and satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview is with an outstanding Chicago trial attorney who talks about his critical and analytical judginess and how it has become a great asset. In this episode, Joe McNerney and I take the time to learn more about the judge and the inventor personality and how personality, when understood, can help all of us transact more effectively. But Joe also cautions us about the error of independence and self-sufficiency. In our Guru Talk, we hear from Vice President Drew Knowles and co-founder Kirkland Tibbles as they lead a conversation about the need to be surrounded by a great surplus of help. Take a second, Joe, and if you would introduce yourself. My name is Joe McNerney. I live in the Chicago area in the Midwest of the United States. I am a lawyer by trade. I'm married to my wife, Mary, for it'll be 37 years in May. We have four sons, two granddaughters. I've been a lawyer since June of 1980. Uh, At least that's when I passed uh, the bar exam and, and was sworn into the bar in Illinois. Throughout my career, I've been a teacher part-time adjunct professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law, which is part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. As a young lawyer, I was a prosecutor in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, which at the time was one of the second or third or fourth largest groups of attorneys practicing under what I'll call one roof. Mm -hmm. We were responsible, in in addition to all kinds of civil litigation, a lot of criminal cases that arose in the county of Cook, which includes the three million people or so that live in the city of Chicago. I've never asked you about this, but were you also involved in a pretty notable case? And if so, are you able to say anything about that? Yeah, well, I've been involved in a few notable cases, although I can tell you that there are far more interesting cases that people have never heard of that never got into the media or otherwise. I've been involved in a number of what I would characterize as significant prosecutions. I prosecuted as a young lawyer two murders of Chicago police officers. I uh, prosecuted the fellow that murdered the former 
Chicago Tribune food editor toward the end of her career after she was getting ready to retire at her home in Beverly. That caught some significant media attention. They also brutally stabbed a six-year-old 48 times, and she survived. I tried that case a couple of decades ago, but I recently got privilege and opportunity to spend some time with her. And she's a remarkable woman, and, and, and God, it, was, it really was a privilege for that part of my career to spend some time with some really remarkable folks, some of whom have had the uh, misfortune of being victims of crime. Judd, thank you for taking the time to say all of that. It allows us to get to know you a little bit more, and, and I've never asked you about that. Anything else I should know about your, your early history in terms of your career? I've moved around in, in, in different industries. So I spent 14 years as a prosecutor in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Then I was hired at uh, a large law firm in Chicago by the name of Johnson & Bell, where I Primarily did medical malpractice defense, defending doctors and hospitals and nurses, particularly the University of Chicago Medical Center and its employees. I was there for about seven years before I took a job on the East Coast of the United States in the Wilmington, Delaware area, where I worked for Smith Barney and then later an affiliate of Leg Mason, running mostly training programs, educational programs for financial advisors or professionals in the investment world. I've done a few other things, but now I'm, I'm running my own law practice and loving it. Great. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about a few things. First of all, when did you, you and I met through Kirkland. So I'm assuming then you met Kirkland at some point in history. When and how did you meet him? Kirkland, I met in Canada. We were both participating in a communication course I think it was my brother that met Kirkland first, uh, my younger brother, and then I met Kirkland, and you know, that was probably 10 or 15 years ago. And then, of course, there was a significant period of time where we were out of touch with one another. And then how did you come to participate at Influence Ecology? Did he contact you, or what happened there? Yes, I believe he first contacted my brother, Michael, who also lives and works in the Chicago area. And played uh, professional golf on the mini tours for about a dozen years. My brother Michael is one of the most fun people <laughs> that you could ever want to meet. And so he and Kirkland immediately hit it off. Kirkland contacted Mike and said he invited him to participate in Influence Ecology. And I believe he also invited me at the same time, or it was Mike's idea to invite me to participate. And we both participated in an FOT, Fundamentals of Transaction. And that was probably about four years ago. All right, great. It's clear to me that you love this education and that you have a, a deep and profound relationship to this and what this is and what this provides. What is it about influence ecology and transactional competence that attracted you to this? Did you, why'd you start hanging out here? I mean, I know I'm a lovely guy, you know, and Kirkland's fun, but you, what is it? You are a lovely guy and a very smart one. Let me start by saying what doesn't attract me. I don't love the homework. The homework is hard work and not much fun. And while I've done very well with my education and like education, the training involved in educating oneself, I find tedious and hard work. You're I welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Notice I'm not saying thank you. <laughs> May I have another? What really made me a lifelong member of Influence Ecology was the first annual member conference that I attended. 
The annual member conference was an immersion in the education that you provide, but it was also an exposure to education that I didn't know you provide. And that was the ecology, more specifically, the people that participate. I don't know how to capture it adequately in words, but I can't wait to be with them again in in Arizona. I can't wait to be with them again in, in Mexico. Just the relationships that I've made in in short periods of time with people that are up to something and that are committed to their own health and well-being and happiness and success, that's for me where the life's blood is in influence ecology. Let's talk about just your own training and development here. What did you learn by studying with influence ecology and then how has that impacted you? To begin, what I learned was that I am naive. Uh, If you met me, I think you'd find that I lean toward the arrogant side. It's crystal clear to me that there are a lot of things that I don't know. The more I read, the more I read the recommended books and readings, the more I engage with the study papers and the material, the more I discover I'm I'm a beginner when it comes to impacting the world, when it comes to money, when it comes to financial competence, when it comes to relationships and power and teamwork and moving people and making magic happen in business and in life. I think that says a mouthful. You mentioned that if you met you, that you would tend to lean arrogant. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) (laughs) I don't disagree. Here's what I love about Joe McNerney. You do have this wonderfully prickly arrogance upon approach. But if you get to know you at all for any moment in time, you're quite the opposite. You're actually one of the warmest guys that I know, and you're quite... You speak to your your appreciation for people and your gratitude for people and your humility around people in a way that I think leaves people quite honored. So you're kind of both those things. You're kind of prickly upon approach, but you're quite the opposite upon getting to know you, is my experience. But what I want to know about, and I think it's great that we have you here as a judge. You're the personality that we would call judge, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But as a personality judge, have you learned to suppress that arrogance? What have you learned about that arrogance and dealing with it, transactionally speaking? God, I almost hate to say this while being recorded, but i it's not what you've described. It's not that I've learned to rein it in. It's not that I've learned to suppress it. It's frighteningly the opposite. I've really come to embrace it. I've really come to appreciate that many of my strengths, and I have some strengths, and I appreciate the kind words you just said a few moments ago about me. And trust me, I'll be happy to do another podcast anytime you're interested, as long as you keep talking like that. (laughs) I found that my strengths are also weaknesses, and my weaknesses are sometimes strengths. And that leaves me forever looking, forever questioning, forever doubting and wondering about whether or not the way I'm about to proceed or the decisions I'm about to make are effective, appropriate, will work. Embracing my arrogance has done nothing but really empower me and give me more capacity to be forceful, to be effective, to look and see what's needed, that if I applied it or did it or said it, could make a difference. That's really, really great. I'm, I'm so glad you said this because it's both our experience and it is our commitment that 
one of the ways that we address personality and transactional behavior here at Influence Ecology is to embrace one's personality. And in the beginning of most people's journey here, we find them often having spent a lifetime attempting to change things about their personality. Oh, I'm kind of prickly. I should be nicer. Oh, I'm kind of arrogant. I should be more humble. Oh, I'm too silly. I should be more serious and the like. And so we've trained people actually that quite the opposite is true. And as you've just said, and I have so many stories in which, especially for our judges, our judges who have spent a lifetime probably being told to be a little less prickly, to be a little less arrogant, to be a little less judgy, to be a little less and so forth, tend to embrace it and in fact use it to their advantage in ways that I think are as beneficial as you just described. Anything, any other comments about that, generally speaking? Yes, I, I can tell you one of the most powerful pieces of education I've ever had was at the first annual member conference, you had a number of folks get up three or four of each primary personality, judges, performers, etc., and speak about really what is a performer? What is it like? And I've, I've had a lot of performers or sales professionals or performer-type personalities in my life, and I, I always found them to be, I'll say, lacking. I always judged them in a way that invalidated them. And you had one gentleman up there who, I won't mention his name, but he communicated what it is to be a f- performer to me in such a profound way, and it involved escapades that I've done some really fun things in my life. But this guy gave me a cut on what it is to be a performer that was so deep and so apparent and so crystal clear to me. And I got to see this aspect of, look, a performer's outgoingness and humor and tendency to be late is part and parcel of that personality. And you almost can't beat the things you don't like in the personality out to capture the others. And it allowed me to accept sales professionals, performers, people whose interest in life is to be entertaining and fun and expressive. It really allowed me to accept them and engage them and embrace them and actually bring them into my life and let them use their strengths to forward what it is that I want to do with my business, what I want to do with my sales, how I want to bring business into my my own company. And so did you reflect that acceptance onto yourself as well? And did that begin an exploration of or an inquiry about accepting your own personality traits? I certainly didn't do it at that time. That's just, and I, and I haven't done it consciously, but at the annual member conferences, many of us, some judges, some, some not primarily judge personalities, they make fun of and light of the fact that judges are so negative, that judges are so critical, that judges are so much of a pain in the neck and much of life and business. And yet, you know, I was a chief compliance officer at an investment firm. And I know that investment advisors don't like to come to the compliance person and be told, you can't do that. We, we will get sued. We'll lose the business if you operate like that. And so I think what you've said is true. I've come to accept that prickliness, that negativeness, that party-killing, mood-killing posture. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I do that every day in my practice. I advise people how to stay out of jail and how to stay out of trouble and how to keep from making judgments that will have profound and permanent impact on the rest of their lives. Any other words of wisdom from your point of view about personality as we teach it and its benefit to people? 
Yeah, so it really has had a powerful impact. So the way I used to operate was if somebody who I would characterize as a jerk came into my world, I would characterize them as a jerk, and I would, in a sense, figuratively kill them or eliminate them from my life because Mm. they're jerks. Now I spend my time trying to figure out what their primary personality is and try and understand why they're approaching a situation or why they're approaching me or a particular business transaction from the perspective that they they are. And I, I can tell you it's a it's a constant inquiry for me because I while I think I completely understand performers and producers, or at least those personality types, inventors are a mystery to me and may always be a mystery to me. They leave me and the inquiry leaves me in a place of wonder, conjecture, questioning, doubting why it is they're like this. And I know, because I know some of their virtues, I know most of them are brilliant and smarter than I am and very creative and inventive. And I can use some of that. I can learn from that. They can contribute to me. Instead of cutting people out of my life, I wind up finding the gold that they have to provide, the real magic that they give to life and get to actually participate and benefit from it. I have a question for you just about your own experience throughout life, because in my own inquiry of the judge personality, you know, my in my early days of exploration about that, you know, my automatic knee-jerk reaction was, gosh, how come so prickly? And gosh, why don't you be more positive and all of that? And of course, now the way that I see a judge is my spouse is a judge. Some of my best friends are judges. I tend to like them quite a bit because they're so freaking grounded. And for an inventor, I'm way out there in the future, five years, 10 years out into the future already. So they ground me. But in my observation of judges over these years, they tend to be in a state of questioning, not wondering, like the state of wonder when one looks at the stars and wonders, but in the state of questioning or uncertainty or a kind of uncertainty that that tends to leave them not as confident. They don't seem to trust their own judgment. Is that an inexperience? No, I, I wouldn't call it that. I would call it they're very trusting of their own judgment. What they're doing is they're evaluating, analyzing. They're, it's really analysis, and they're trying to figure out everything. It's not a lack of trust. It's just the opposite. I can tell you, me as a judge, the more I trust my judgment, the more I find I'm accurate about situations, about risk, about what not to do. I don't mean that in a sense that I'm all that smart either. I really don't. I make mistakes. When it comes to how much research, how much evaluation, where to go to look for the answers to questions to determine whether or not a course of action might be a good course of action. That kind of investigative looking at problems, I'm passionate about that. I do it normally and automatically. I'm always, yes, sometimes someone pulls the wool over my eyes, and boy, I learn a lot from that, from somebody that can fool me. Oh, man, I don't get fooled much. But when I get fooled, it's, it's by a master, So then what I observe, this is again me learning about judge, so what I observe as confusion, what you're calling it for you, what you're saying is actually going on is a kind of certainty about your process of inquiry, that you're in a state of question, 
but it's not confusion. It's a state of question. Is this true? Is this accurate? Is this right? Is this good? Something more like that. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. Yes, it's more like that, but I, I don't mean to say that I'm not often confused. So in a, in a trial setting, we prepare and we prepare and prepare, and then we go to trial and all hell breaks loose. The best trial lawyers in my experience are really effective in this chaos. They're really effective in the face of all this confusion. And because it's there, you know, there's, there really, there really is a question about if you ask that question, you may get buried. If you try to introduce this piece of evidence, you may get killed by it. But the more time I spend in that chaos, the more confidence I get my ability to be effective in the face of complete and utter disaster. And I mean, I tried a case where our key witness on a murder of a policeman, got up on the witness stand and told us what he just told us moments before in an interview room was all false. And this was the moment of truth. The jury's in the box, the judge's ruling, and this witness withdrew everything that he had told us, which was all the reason why we would put him on the stand was to confirm our theory of the case. It was complete and utter disaster. And there's no opportunity like life to say, okay, time out, like Adele did on the Grammys the other day. Time out. Let's start this song over. All you can do is roll with it and look at, okay, what are my options here to be effective in the face of this? What, what other, how can I approach this? How do I deal with this witness? And we did. We immediately questioned him about the fact that he testified under oath in the grand jury to opposite facts from what he was just testifying to. And then he had an explanation for why he did that. And then we went to our other plan C, which wasn't a plan C because we didn't have any plan for this eventuality. This was not in the realm of possibility. So while I'm not saying judges aren't offered and confused, but you know, when I was a supervisor in the state's attorney's office, the only problems people brought to me were the ones that couldn't be solved. All the easy ones got answered along the way. But when they wound up in my office, it was because they had reached this wall and had this problem And they came to me for the answer. So then for our judges that are listening, I always want to to leave people with some tools or some way of bettering themselves or empowering themselves by learning more about their own personality. So as a judge personality, for all of those listening that are judges, how would you talk to them about relating to all that that's going on about their inquiry and their judgment? I would tell them to keep doing that, that that process is useful and they'll know if their judgments and evaluations and their conclusions are valid or not. 
What I would say, and what I really love about influence ecology is that the ecology, the other personalities, the other people that participate make fun of us. And they do it in a wonderful way. Like they make fun of our negativity. They, they actually accept it. It's like two police officers of differing races that work together. They are in the trenches together. They've been shot at together. They become brothers in a way that real brothers often don't. And I really, I just, I just say judges need to kind of be a little more forgiving of themselves because what they, these skills that they have, these tendencies they have to be critical and judge, judgmental and be negative around people, they have great benefit in business to society generally. And yes, they're not particularly useful on the dance floor. That's really great. That's really great. All right, good. Well, thank you. That helped me understand Judges, uh, just a little bit more. Anything you want to ask me about the world or brain of an inventor? Or? Yes. I think my quandary about inventors is that they're always coming from someplace that I'm not coming from. It's like I can't even think from where they come from. And my analysis of it, my judgment about it is that judges come from reality out of skepticism, out of rocks are hard, water's wet. And inventors, from what I can tell, come out of the unreal world, which for me was always an anathema, which is like, well, there isn't anything other than what's real. And yet, I know dreams and thoughts, well, they're real as thoughts and dreams, but there's something elusive for me, something that I can't grasp, something that I can barely speak about, about inventors that dwells in the unreal world because the unreal world, it sounds stupid to say, it's not real. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so great. Well, there's a couple of different things. First of all, in the advanced program map to PSTI, which stands for Planning, Strategy, Tactics, and Implementation, we talk about the partnering of the personalities and planning the P of a PSTI planning is where the two personalities, judge and inventor, get in a room and they confront the reality and the facts and say, what can we do with these facts for the future? So there's that that's worth saying because certainly where an inventor gets their imaginings from is not from nothing. One of the things Kirkland said to me very, very early on. He said, you know, inventors are the kind of people that like to get in front of a parade that's already in progress. They don't invent stuff, although they're called inventors here. They don't actually invent like an entirely new thought. What they do is they take stuff and then they repackage it, repurpose it. They imagine what they could do with it. If I have all of the building blocks of a well, let's say I have all of the pieces to a house. I could do this with the windows, or I could do that with the roof. I can do stuff with this stuff that already is. So that may offer something about the way that inventors think. No, that's that's huge, John, because what, what you just did was you made what they're up to real for me. Meaning, so they're out in front of the parade, changing the course of the parade, adding marchers to the parade. They're adding floats, or they're looking at what's possible to make this parade even better five years from now or next year. So that, from a judge standpoint, I can really get that, like that really comes through. 
There's another analogy too, and maybe you and I can talk about this, but I, I often think about the difference between how a judge might view driving down a road and how an inventor might view driving down a road or how a performer might view driving down the road. So for example, if a performer personality is in the present, I would say the performer is looking over the hood of the car, staring straight down at the street as it's passing. <laughs> There's a white line sort of zipping by, right? But they're not looking too far down the road. The producer personality is looking past the hood. Maybe they're looking out a couple of blocks down the road. And a performer is already considering what the next city might look like and whether or not that city might be packed because it's Chicago and it's St. Patrick's Day or whether or not that city might be a great place to stop because you've heard wonderful things about it and there's stuff to do there. And a judge might think about where they've been already and how they might capture stuff about where they've been so they might use it again when needed. Now, that may be a terrible analogy of how it is for judge, and this is where I can learn from you, but that may say a little bit about at least how an inventor might view the road ahead. So anything you want to say about all that? Yeah, very much so. So I love how an inventor's view of, so I'm now, I'm in this car and with three with all four personalities and the performer's driving. And by the way, the performer's driving and has a glass of wine in his right <laughs> hand. Okay. The 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 producer, the producer is looking at the gas gauge to see if there's fuel in the tank. The inventor, you just said what the inventor's doing, and the the judge is in the backseat looking out the rear window to see if we hit anybody. Yes. Beautifully said. Beautiful analogy. The only thing I'll add is that the producers also got a cooler, a piece of luggage, um, all the possible things they might need in case something happens or might happen or does happen or should happen. Well, I'll say it a little differently. The producer actually isn't in the car because we left them behind. We forgot to pick them up. <laughs> that's terrible. See, here we are making fun of one of the other personalities. But that's what you're talking about, right? We all get to experience these other personalities in a way that isn't a bad thing. It's more like how how do I, as a human being, be responsible for the way these other personalities are? And I'm not going to change them. I'm not going to have them be different. I'm not going to have the judges be less arrogant. I'm not going to have the inventors be less conceited. I'm not going to have the producers be less loyal and worker bees. I'm, I'm just not going to change any of that stuff. So if I'm not going to change any of that stuff, then what is the asset of this personality? And how can I use all this for the betterment of all of us, to speed things up, to satisfy our aims. I'd like to share a story I'm sure you've heard. It's uh, the story of the empty boat, and it, it comes in many iterations. The way I'll say it right now is there's a gentleman out on his boat on a river, and he's particularly proud of this boat, and it's got a great paint job, and he doesn't let any of his family touch it or or use it or go in it because he's very protective of this precious boat he's got. And out of nowhere comes this empty boat just must have come away from a dock or somehow it got loose and the boat's floating down the stream and it crashes into his boat and scratches the paint and does some damage to his boat and he responds by just kind of pushing the boat away or doing whatever he does but he can see the boat's empty and really doesn't make any judgments about it whereas if there had been someone in the boat he would have let loose and sworn and cursed and gone on and on. And it, whereas if the boat's empty, 
kind of just accept, hey, there's a loose boat in the river and deal with it. And it reminds me of how I now kind of work with personalities. Yes, all of these personalities operate the way they operate and they have strengths and weaknesses and what may look like they can be some other way or they could act some other way toward you or they could do something different. When I look at them from the, the standpoint of this education, I'm much more likely to treat them like an empty boat and not in a derogatory sense, but I'm much more likely to treat them as just kind of accept the way there are with all their warts and virtues and all the rest and then operate my boat accordingly. Great. This is very, very great. Well, I think there are two other things I think we could address here. One is transactional competence and why all that personality stuff matters to, to transactional competence, because if the correlations aren't made, they may they may not be understood. So last night I had a a fundamentals of transaction program that started. And when people said why they were there and what they were struggling with, you heard several different things. You heard people say that they wanted to be able to get people to work in the way that they needed them to work. They needed to manage their people to get them to do what they needed them to do. They needed to get their kids to clean their bedroom. They need to reach their aims for money and they know they've got to transact to try to make more income or they've got to transact with other people to produce a, the kind of identity that they want and on and on and on. And so in case the correlations aren't made, when people understand what a transaction looks like and the personalities involved in those transactions, then they can speed all that up they can make all that happen very, very quickly and with a great deal of ease. And I think what you're pointing to is where people do fail in their transactional competence is when they're unwilling to consider the personality of another and they simply try to force some outcome. They beat that thing to death or wish and hope, try to get it to go their way, which of course you and I know doesn't work. Any comment about all that? Yeah. And another aspect of that is we may spend a lot of our time and energy tinkering with trying to change the personality of the other person and miss the project that we're really out to accomplish. Yeah, that's a great note. And whether or not that's you're working on trying to change the personality of another person or your own personality. I think I sometimes hear a collective sigh of relief when performers, I'll tell my performers at the beginning of a program, you really don't have to get more disciplined. Stop working on it. Really, stop working on it. Be free. And that kind of stuff is great for personality. And it's great to be around performers that aren't constrained. The world is doing a pretty good job of constraining them. And the same with judges. It takes a lot of energy to be less prickly. Here, let me feign some happiness and let me feign some that I think everything's going wonderfully here. The second point I want to make is that takes us to somebody asked me the other day about transactionalism. And, and I said, well, there's so many different ways to relate to transactionalism. And it is a study in the exchange animal that we are and how this species has really done well, the degree to which we are capable of exchange and that we're good at exchange, reciprocal exchange, co-constitutive exchange and the like. But somebody said, well, isn't there another word that you might use for transactionalism? And I said, well, coexistence, coexistence. In other words, 
I can account for that there are others on this planet. I can account for that there are others in this transaction. I can account for that there are others. And when I say others, that I don't just mean people, but I also mean the physical environment, the natural environment, uh, all of it, right? So there are others in this transaction, and I'll do better the degree to which I can be responsible for all that. And I'll suffer wherever I simply exclude where I I hold myself in isolation from all that and think that I have no ability to transact with it or I where I'm naive enough to think that I'm not influenced or impacted by it. So on that note, since that's one of the ways in which I see and relate to transactionalism, I'd love to hear your comment on that. Yeah, well, that's that's really fabulous the way you say that because it reminds me, one of the first questions you asked me was about my own naivete because I, I can tell you when I first started the Fundamentals of Transaction, I'm one of these people that doesn't need any help from anybody. I can do everything on my own. And one of the principles that has struck me between the eyes out of influence ecology is that you cannot, that I cannot survive with others. And I'm arrogant enough, at least some time ago, to think that I don't need anybody else. I can do everything on my own. If I want it done right, do it myself. And boy, have I got a rude awakening uh, when it comes to the importance of having enormous support and a great staff and an amazingly supportive family and relationships. I represent people that tell me from time to time that are in a jam with the criminal law, that they don't have anybody. They don't have any family. They don't have any money. They don't have any way to borrow money. They don't have any way to, to hire a, a lawyer like me. And of course, they're in desperate, desperate straits. And it's always breathtaking to me to have people say that to me because they don't have a chance if they don't have family, friends, co-workers, people in their lives that love them, that can make bail for them, will not abandon them when the going gets tough. At one of the annual conferences, you talked about the iPhone and what it takes, how many people it takes to really create the iPhone from the people manufacturing the, the metal and the chips and the glass. And the, it's breathtaking the hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe more people involved in actually creating a single cell phone. And yet we operate like we don't need help from our communities, from law enforcement, from government, from from our teachers, from our schools, from our folks that repair the sewer system. It's it's just really extraordinary. And the whole education about human beings are three things. They're transactional, linguistic, and biological. That's so important to appreciate. We can't even get in get scratch the surface on this podcast, but your health, if you don't have your health, you can't contribute to society. You can't help anyone. And that's something that you haven't asked me about. But boy, did I take that away from the education I've had here that I need to take care of my physical well-being. That's very important to handle. Well, Joe, this has been a pleasure. And I appreciate any time I get to talk with you. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you for your inquiry. Thank you for your constant judging. I don't say that in any way except for an acknowledgement. So thank you for being one of our judges. And I I look forward to shine a light on your judginess for the benefit that it is to all people. 
Uh, you're, you're so welcome, John, and thanks really to you and Kirkland for creating this magnificent company and the extraordinary education that comes out of it. You're welcome. In our Guru Talk, we listen in on a webinar classroom co-led by Vice President Drew Knowles and co-founder Kirkland Tibbles on the topic of autonomy and having a surplus of help. Here's the talk. Most people relate to the notion or the idea that this condition of individuality, freedom, total self-reliance, that to be autonomous is just, I do not need anyone. As if there's this day coming that you are not gonna require anyone's help and you can exist independent of others. And we're just here to tell you, this is a false notion. It's not going to serve me. It's not gonna serve my aims. We've talked a lot in some of our advanced studies about self-sufficiency and man, the more you get into what it would look like and what it would be like to live a self-sufficient lifestyle, it is the very opposite of what we're trying to talk about here. You see, autonomy is not a condition where you'll be able to act alone as you see fit without the need of others. In fact, it's a condition exactly the opposite of this. Autonomy is having more help than you require, a surplus of help. This is one of the main points, everybody, of today's session. Autonomy is having more help than you require, a surplus of help. We're going to start to talk now about, well, what the hell does that mean, a surplus of help? How much help do I need? And I find mostly people, A, they don't know how much help they really need, they certainly don't know how to transact for it or exactly what help they need to have that kind of autonomy. Now, autonomy is demonstrated by those who have their invitations, offers and requests met quickly and at a low cost. So Kirkland, I'd love you to speak to autonomy, but how it relates to this thing called money, which we always, you know, we often talk about as as help and how that connects to the main topic of tonight or today of building and expanding your influence ecologies and cooperation. The step itself, this idea that we would take on purposely building our influence in particular groups and uh, our, our environment came out of this concept that human beings cannot live alone we need other human beings in our circle of influence. We need help. We need lots of help. And the best way to get help is to make yourself valuable or helpful. And this whole notion that we ought to stop for a second and consider what autonomy really is and what, how autonomy works in our life is counter to what the current teaches. The current teaches independent. The concept the concept got even further set in stone and planted foundationally in this whole empowerment movement that said, said that pr produces narratives that if it's to be, it's up to me and I am self-actional enough and self-causal enough to make things happen. And it gives way to certain things like if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself in this whole ethic, especially in the West and uh, especially in the U.S., this superhero I can do it all kind of ethic. And this notion 
is counter to our fundamental biology. It's counter to our fundamental wiring that we as human beings are social critters. We are reciprocal. We are exchange creatures. We cannot live alone. Then it makes sense if you step back and go, wow, that means I need as much help as I can get. One of my favorite points that came out of FOT call early on in influence ecology history is, is one of our more famous judges who said that uh, it's because I don't like people generally that I know I need as many of them around me as I can get. So I don't have to deal with people. My people deal with people was how they narrated the whole concept that self-sufficiency, the closer you get, to a purely self-sufficient existence in life, the more labor is going to be required of you. If you have to grow your own food, if, if, you have to, if you're looking to live a purely self-sufficient existence, you are going to have to spend your days laboring through the things that it takes to keep you and your loved ones alive. That is not a kind of existence that looks like freedom, that looks like being able to enjoy your most important conditions of life. In fact, it looks like exactly the opposite. So if you look at the need for moving in your environment to expand your own influence, a great place to consider is the conditions of life. Use the thinking through your conditions of life. Look through the conditions of life that you are working on and you'll begin to see where you need surplus. You need surplus help in the work that you must do to maintain and to expand your own living conditions. You need help in education. I invite you to consider that you need a surplus of help in valuable education to draw on, to make requests and get help from people who are experts in very specific areas. You need a surplus of money. And in fact, I think you need a, a lot of money because money is a tool. Money is access to buy help in other areas. You need a surplus in reciprocal relationship. In your intimate relationship, it works to have a surplus of goodies built up. In your family, it is worth it to take the time to build relationships of surplus, surplus giving, surplus help. How do you get help from your intimate relationships in your life, your friends, your family, your loved ones? By making sure that you are paying attention to them and their concerns in life. What about your relationships at work? What about your relationships here at Influence Ecology? The advanced students in this ecology, especially the ones who are taking their education very seriously, spend a lot of extra time building transactions to build their own Influence Ecology right here in this environment because of the value of help that is worldwide and at your fingertips if you know how to make proper invitations, you know how to make proper offers, and you make yourself known in the ecology as help, not as someone who is high cost. In our next episode, we interview John James and Lauren Cato Robinson, business partners of the C-Section Recovery Center in Dallas, Texas. We have struggled a lot in our relationship. And it's been really difficult for both of us at times. And it's been the most transformative relationship of my life. 
I agree. I'm a different person because of John in a really good way. And I think both of us being in this work together and understanding what we're doing it for and understanding the distinctions and being able to hold each other accountable for the commitments we've made and creating this consequential environment, it's allowed us to grow as people in a way that is really unusual out in the world. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to share it with others, you can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe. We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Episode producer, editor, and music supervisor Jason Kelly. Podcast copy and show notes, editing, and links by Carol Gregory.